Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Third Line Therapies in Chronic Myeloid Leukemia, Evolving to Overcome the Limitations of Early Generation Tyrosine Kinase Inhibitors. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Hello, my name is Jorge Cortez. I'm the director of the Georgia Cancer Center at Augusta University in Augusta, Georgia. In this activity, we will discuss how to optimize the treatment of patients with CML who are resistant or intolerant to first and second line TTIs. Let's first review why these are such difficult patients to treat and how our evolving knowledge about the disease has affected the therapeutic development. When you look at the data, about 40% of patients that start with the tyrosine kinase inhibitor frontline, whether it's a first-generation imatinib or any second-generation, they end up changing therapy either because of resistance or intolerance. That tells us that the treatment is not as adequate as we would like it to be. And when we move to a second-line therapy, only about half of the patients treated on the pivotal dasatinib, nemaltinib, ambosutinib therapy after imatinib failure achieved a complete cytogenetic response. We have guidelines that tell us uh, what are the optimal responses for our patients and what determines that we need to change therapy. And these guidelines focus specifically on resistance. There are no clear guidelines for intolerance. It's mostly a clinical judgment. But for resistance, we focus on the early responses at 3, 6, and 12 months. The guidelines from the NCCN and the European Leukemia Net are similar but not identical. And we need to keep in mind that this has to be taken in the context of the patient, whether the patient, for example, has had interruption of therapy, and so on. Ultimately, we do want that by 12 months, patient would have a major molecular response. And then if the patients lose the response thereafter, we would need to change therapy. Now, what are the guidelines for second-line and third-line therapy is not very well defined. The NCCN, for example, does not have a third-line therapy guideline specifically. And although the European Leukemia Net defines the guidelines for second-line the same as for first-line, this has not been really prospectively developed. So that is an area where there is still a need for better understanding of how we should monitor and treat the patients and what goals to achieve. But of course, we do have a number of treatment options that are available that can help us in this context. And we've gone from the development of first generation to second generation to third generation TKIs. And then more recently, the development of the first meristoil pocket inhibitor, the first non-ATP binding site competitive inhibitor, which opens new possibilities for the treatment of CML. Now, in the next session, we will review the efficacy data for the third-line treatment options for patients with chronic phase, chronic myeloid leukemia. In this session, we will review now the significance of the clinical evidence on the efficacy of the approved third-line treatment options for patients with resistant or intolerant chronic myeloid leukemia. This is in the chronic phase. Asimini was approved based on a comparison with rosutinib in the third-line setting, and it showed that the rate of response measured as major molecular response at 24 weeks was significantly higher with Asimini almost doubling the rate of response, and that has continued over time. And that is maintained after longer follow-up, but 96 weeks and beyond. This was what led to the approval of this drug as a third-line option for patients in chronic phase. This study did not have T359-mutated patients, but we do have data for patients with T359. 
Also, in patients with T359, there is a good response rate of the urinary, a higher dose, 200 milligrams twice daily, compared to the 40 milligrams twice daily for all other patients. But with that dose, 200 milligrams twice daily, almost 50% of patients respond more if they have not been previously exposed to panatinib than if they have been previously exposed to panatinib. Speaking about ponatinib, that's another third-generation drug that is useful in these same contexts of two prior therapies. We learned that from the PACE study, where we knew high rates of responses, very durable responses, with very good progression-free survival and overall survival with a dose of 45 milligram standard dose. Because of some of the safety concerns that occur, particularly arterial occlusive events, there was an interest of understanding better the probability of response with different doses, 45 versus 30 versus 15 milligrams as the starting dose. And in that study, we learned that the response rate is significantly higher with 45 milligrams once daily. You reduce the dose in that study to 15 milligrams once the patient responds. And with that, the benefit was maintained. There was some suggestion of a positive possible better progression-free survival, though not statistically significant, no difference in overall survival, but very good with all of these doses. Finally, omacetaxin is not a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, but it is useful in some of these patients where tyrosine kinase inhibitors have not worked. It is a drug that's given subcutaneously. It is myelosuppressive, but overall an alternative for these patients, although with somewhat lower probabilities of response. So this session examined the latest efficacy data for approved third-line treatment options for patients with CML with resistance to prior therapies. And in the next session, we will review the safety profiles of these options. In this session, we'll now review the safety profiles of the approved third-line treatment options for patients with CML, and we will describe some proactive adverse event monitoring and management strategies for the clinicians to use. Let's start with Asiminib, and this drug has been very safe, and the most common adverse event is thrombocytopenia. Grade 3 can happen in about 20% of the patients, and of the non-hematologic toxicity, the most common is elevated lipase, but you also see some hypertension in about 5 to 6% of the patients. It is important, of course, then to monitor the patients for hematologic toxicity. When the patients develop grade 3 toxicity, you have to stop the drug by monitoring them weekly. If they recover within two weeks, you can resume at the same dose. If not, you can reduce the dose once the patient recovers. For the non-hematologic toxicity, the most important things for a seminiv is to monitor the lipase. It's usually not clinically significant. It's usually not associated with pancreatitis, but it is important for a patient who has history of pancreatitis in particular or risk factor to monitor that at baseline and monitor them prospectively. For ponatinib, the most common adverse events, of course, thrombocytopenia, as with other tyrosine kinase inhibitors, lipase elevation can also happen. And then we also keep in mind that there may be dry skin, sometimes constipation, things that need to be monitored. It is very important with ponatinib, the risk of arterial occlusive events. Now, here you need to remember that most of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors have a risk of arterial occlusive events. Always evaluate the comorbidities and the risk factors for arterial occlusive events and make sure that these are managed, controlled, not only at baseline, but prospectively so that the patient has the lowest possible risk of these arterial occlusive events. With ponatinib also, we have the risk of liver toxicity, so it's important to assess it at baseline and monitor prospectively. And if the toxicity raises to grade 3, you need to hold the therapy, wait until recovery, and then adjust the doses. 
Amoxetaxin, the main toxicity is myelosuppression. It can be more common and more prolonged than with the other drugs. So usually instead of the 14 days to start and then the seven days of maintenance, you end up using fewer days and manage for each patient according to the myelosuppression. That's the most important thing to remember for these drugs. In the next session, we will discuss how I personalize the treatment selection for my patients with CML. This session will provide the best practices for individualizing the selection of an approved third-line treatment regimen for patients with resistant CML based on mutation status, response to date, and other factors. So when considering what treatment to use, we need to consider two big domains. One is the patient. What are the comorbidities that the patient may have had? What are the goals of therapy for the patient? What are the history of any adverse events and things like that? And then we need to consider the disease and the treatment itself. How much resistance versus intolerance the patient has had? What are the possible drug-drug interactions that the drug may have for a given patient, depending on what all the drugs they are taking? The schedule of administration that may vary from drug to drug and that may be better fit for a patient versus another. All of these things have to be taken into consideration when we select the drug that best fits our patient. The NCCN guidelines and other publications have given us recommendations as to what drugs to avoid when you have a given mutation. For example, when we have mutations on that meristoil pocket or the mutation F359B, I, or C, aciminib tends not to work well in those instances. For ponatinib, for amacetaxin, there's really no contraindication, no known mutation that is not going to work, at least from preclinical data. So when you put all of these together, you can consider that, for example, patients that have primary resistance, that have had a very refractory disease that never went below 10%, certainly patients that have progression to the advanced phase. In these patients, ponatinib is a good choice. Patients that don't want to have these fasting criteria. Patients where you have a lot of intolerance with a lot of high risk features for arterial occlusive events, you may want to consider a seminive therapy. Patients with T350 I, both of them work, but keep in mind that a requires a higher dose and you don't have the option there to use it only once a day. Probably the most difficult patients are patients with compound mutations and also patients with very persistent pancytopenia or thrombocytopenia at least because all these drugs have some tendency for thrombocytopenia, so adjusting the doses is very important. So in this session, I offered some guidance on tailoring the choice of an approved third-line treatment regimen for patients with resistant CML, considering factors such as mutation status, the patient's condition, prior treatment response. And in the final session, we will discuss other more holistic factors that are key when selecting an appropriate therapy. In this session, we will expand on the discussion on how to select an approved third-line treatment regimen for patients with resistant CML, exploring specifically topics such as comorbidities, concomitant medications, and administration schedule and preference. It is very important to assess the patient very completely before we start the treatment to see what risk factors and how many does the patient have. If there's no risk factors, then you look at all the other issues related to the schedule of administration and so on. If the patient has risk factors, let's see which ones you can modify. For example, patient choices, the diet, the exercise, all of these things. Sometimes it helps to call upon a colleague, a cardiologist, an endocrinologist, if it is difficult to control the comorbidity that requires better management and more expertise. 
We know that uh, some TKIs have very low risk of cardiovascular disease, imatinib the lowest, and then bosutinib. Others have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Dasatinib, nilotinib, perhaps pronatinib has the highest. Assuming if we have less data, it does have a higher risk than bosutinib, but not as high as pronatinib. So it seems to be somewhere in between. You need to pay attention to some concomitant medications and try to avoid as much as possible the co-administration. Now, we know some patients need to take those medications. That close monitoring is needed, but whenever possible, either change the concomitant medication or select a TKI that has less of a risk of interaction with those concomitant medications. So I think with all of these that we reviewed today, we can see we have very good options for patients in third-line therapy and beyond in CML. It is important to optimally assess the patient, select the drug, monitor the patient, manage holistically, and with that, we can offer the patient the best probability of success. And the last point is that we should not forget that the patient is not just a PCR. The patient is not just whether they have a major molecular response or not. We need to integrate all of the characteristics of the patient involve colleagues that can help you in a multidisciplinary management and balance efficacy, safety, desires of the patient very importantly so that we optimize the outcome that is more meaningful for that particular patient in the long term. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.